Hello and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me once again. When Woody Guthrie was crisscrossing the country in 1938, he found himself in Redding, California, where thousands of migrant labourers were hungrily waiting to start long-delayed work on the Kenneth Dam. One night, the troubadour chanced upon a couple of young girls singing and playing guitars in a camp. It was an old folk tune, Worried Man Blues, and Guthrie was entranced by the sweetness of the girls' voices. He grabbed his guitar and joined in. It takes a worried man to sing a worried song. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie was born on July 14, 1912, so this summer marks the centennial of the iconic singer-songwriter's birth. On tonight's edition of Voicebox, we're going to think about Guthrie's incredible voice, but not just in the literal sense. By absorbing the voices he heard around him during his many years on the road, like the sound of the two young women singing Worried Man Blues in Reading on that memorable night in 1938 and distilling their emotions, beliefs and desires with his own pungent artistry, Guthrie proved himself to be so much more than a creator and singer of folksy ballads. He was, above all, a voice of the people and for the people, and it is this quality of Guthrie's art, his ability to channel the voices of ordinary folk and thereby influence generations of singers that came after him, that we're going to focus on tonight. To that end, I'm excited to introduce Peter Glazer, who's going to guide us on our journey into the vocal landscape of Woody Guthrie. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Peter is a professor of performance studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and a playwright and director. He's the creator of the stage show Woody Guthrie's American Song, which has been performed many times around the country over the past couple of decades to critical acclaim. The show was first produced in 1989 and is adapted from Guthrie's songs and writings. And the Freight and Salvage Folk Club in Berkeley is currently presenting a run of the production through July 22nd. Peter, that scene in the Reading Immigrant Worker Camp is related by Guthrie in his 1943 autobiography, Bound for Glory, and it played an important role, as I understand it, in your thinking about how you would portray the singer's voice and persona on stage in Woody Guthrie's American Song. Please, can you tell us about that? Yeah, when I got the idea to do this show, um, I began to read everything that was published of Woody's, and this was in the late 70s, and um, I read Bound for Glory, and I came upon this scene... And it seemed a kind of an iconic moment in his story and also um, an iconic musical moment. And as I was adapting his writing for the show, um, this was one of the scenes that I picked on. And uh, it became, it was one of the first scenes that I ever put into the musical. And over the course of its development, over seven or eight years, it's the one that solidified first and that's been in the show the longest and has always gotten a big response from the audience because it's such a beautiful scene. But what is it about that story that particularly resonated with you? Well, he 
he talks about listening to these two girls sing while um, at dusk and that people began to gather around them in the camp in Reading. And uh, he describes a bunch of drunk men coming in from town, coming over the rim of the hill and being basically stopped dead by the sound. And the combination of the impact that the music had on these people who were struggling so hard and also the way that the music and Woody began to participate in a dialogue so that um, the moment that we sort of expand on in the show is an idea that he would hear something from these folks, he would provide a verse that told a little bit more of their story and sort of pull from them a desire to really express themselves through song and this exchange of music going back and forth between these people and Woody became um, one of the guiding ideas of the of the theater piece that I created. Right, because in your piece it's not just one performer standing on stage being Woody Guthrie. The part is shared, the voice is shared between lots of different singers. That's right. Um, the the material that first ex that that I first saw that excited me and made me think of creating this piece of theater was uh, in, collected in a book called Born to Win, and I was standing in a bookstore. I was early in my theater career, and I found um, this book, and it was Woody speaking about about music and about his life, and uh, I thought this is the perfect context to create a piece of musical theater, and um, my. I had two immediate thoughts. I don't want it to be a one-man show. Mm. You know, at that point, the Hal Holbrook, Mark Twain was all over the country. And, mm -hmm. and because he was talking about an idea of music coming from the people mm. and of that being a really key idea for him. Mm -hmm. So to have one person on stage seemed to compromise that um, instinct on his part. And the other thing was that I couldn't imagine doing a Woody Guthrie show without harmony because I'd grown up listening to the Weavers and Peter, Paul and Mary. And, right. and just it just seemed um, like it was going in the wrong direction to limit it to one voice uh -huh. and um, gave me a lot of then that gave me a lot of flexibility in the creation of a theater piece to have five people on stage sharing his voice uh, at different times in the show. That passage that you read to me the other day uh, that inspired you and made you think about Woody Guthrie's voice as being very much sort of of the people and for the people. Um, I would love to hear that again. Could you sure. read it aloud for us? I would be happy to. And this this is part of, this was the first thing I ever read uh, of Woody's prose and uh, is now part of the opening uh, set of speeches in the show. You may have been taught to call me by the name of a poet, but I am no more of a poet than you are. No better singer. I never did learn enough to read the notes of music, nor learned many of the laws of high language, but I did keep my eyes on you and kept my ears open when you came close to me. I remember your face just as it was when I saw you. I hear your voice in its own loose words like it spoke when I heard it. I have heard a storm of words in me, but I know that these words are not my own private property. I borrowed them from you, the people I owe. I borrowed words from you the same as I walked through the high winds and borrowed enough air to keep me moving. I borrowed my life from the works of your lives. Your works and my works hold hands, and our memories never will separate. That's just so beautiful. I think it really sums up uh, his way of approaching the voice and your approach in the show, right? Yeah, and it also, uh, I, I agree in it, and it, it was the 
it was the trigger that led me to create the show as I did. And But it also, you know, you were talking about Woody's voice, not only his spoken voice, but his voice as a writer. What really caught me was the way that he put words on the page, mm-hmm. not only as a songwriter, but as a writer of prose. Yeah. And I had never been exposed to his prose before, and his prose are basically the book of this musical because mm-hmm. I thought his writing style was so engaging and unique and sort of heartfelt and real and um and 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 it sounds beautiful coming out of actors mouths unlike my own where uh, I have certain limitations <laughs> well let's listen now to an example of Guthrie's own solo voice singing his song Pastures of Plenty and then for contrast or juxtapose that with the same song transformed into a group a collective experience by cast members performing it on the cast album from Woody Guthrie's American Song it's a mighty hard road that my poor hand is told my poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rolled, and your desert was hot and your mountains was edge of your town you've seen us after we've hit the road the people you call strangers the people that follow the sun and the seasons to your country follow the if you've just joined us welcome i'm chloe veltman and this is voice box public radio's weekly series about the human voice voice box is available as a free weekly podcast on itunes and at voicebox-media.org My guest is Peter Glazer, a professor of performance studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and the creator of the stage show Woody Guthrie's American Song. It's Guthrie's 100th birthday, and we're celebrating with an exploration of the artist's voice, both as a musical instrument and as an instrument of the people. We just heard Guthrie's song, Pastures of Plenty, performed two ways. The first was by the songwriter himself, and the second was from the cast album for Woody Guthrie's American Song. Peter, what do you think of Guthrie's voice? How would you describe it? Uh, it's a pretty remarkable voice. It's, um, it's, it's rough. It's got a real Oklahoma twang to it. Um, it's very honest uh when you hear him when you hear him talk he rambles (laughs) but he rambles in a rather wonderfully um captivating way um and uh it's a very um uh, for lack of a better word it's a very american voice i think Mm -hmm. you got the sense that when woody spoke he was speaking extemporaneously always Mm -hmm. and once he had the structure of a song um, and his and his singing voice, it becomes a, his voice becomes a little more uh, shaped 
and the edges come off just a little bit. And also he's got a structure underneath him with mm -hmm. which he would uh, use for the song. Um, but there's certainly a similarity in his in his twang and in his honesty that I think crosses between both his spoken voice and his singing voice. I thought we could listen to a little bit of Woody Guthrie speaking now. Here he is in conversation with the great folk music historian Alan Lomax. Lomax asks the guitar strumming Guthrie for his definition of the blues. Well, a blues, Alan, is... Uh, I always just called it just... Uh, Plain old being lonesome. Now, a lot of people don't think that's a big enough word. But then you can get lonesome for a lot of things. Uh, people down where I come from, they're lonesome for a job. They're lonesome for some spending money. Lonesome for some drinking whiskey. Lonesome for good time. Pretty gals, wine, women, and song like they see stuck up in their face every day by other people. Lonesome never has that word sounded so profound, I think, as it does the way Woody Guthrie pronounces it in that little excerpt there, sharing his definition of the blues with Alan Lomax. Do you happen to know when that recording was made, Peter? Uh, it was made in 1940. Um, uh, Woody says he was 28 years old, and, and it, you know, it's dated as 1940. And um, uh, Lomax had heard Woody at a benefit in New York City um, on the stage of the play Tobacco Road. Um, and that was the first time that Woody sort of made, uh, was was present and spoke at a, and sang at an event um, on the East Coast. And um, Pete Seeger was in the wings and Alan Lomax was in the wings. And, and uh, I guess to use one of Woody's terms, they knew the genuine article when they saw it. <laughs> and um, he brought him down to Washington at some point to uh, spend couple hours in a studio recording songs and stories yeah on voice box tonight berkeley professor peter glazer is here with me chloe veltman for a discussion about the vocal power musically and sociologically of woody guthrie whose centennial it is in 2012 if you aren't able to catch our show on air don't worry. Simply visit voicebox-media.org or iTunes to download our weekly podcasts for free. We're thinking about Guthrie's voice not just as a musical instrument, but also as a vessel for channeling the spirit of a nation or something like that. What was the music landscape like in this country at the time that Guthrie was around and traveling about? Well, bef when, he, when he was beginning to find his musical voice, which was in um, Oklahoma and Texas as a young man, um, the radio was playing and his mother was singing uh, his mother was singing uh, songs from the church and sort of old american ballads as i understand it and uh, he described listening to uh, records when he was when he was in his first band which was called the corncob trio mm -hmm. um, the carter family jimmy rogers um, i just found out i just discovered today that one of sort of Woody's iconic lines, uh, I'm going where the water tastes like wine, was a very popular line in Southern music that Jimmy Rogers used in mm. Tea for Texas. Mm. But Woody describes, as I say, he was, he really, he really absorbed a lot of things around him. A lot of his melodies came from the Carter family. The town he grew up in was a, it became an oil boom town and there were people from all different cultures coming through there. He learned music from ex-slaves. He learned music from um, I'm sure, as he describes, from from people who'd been in prison, and he just pulled these different mm -hmm. songs out of the 
sort of musical textures around him and and made them his own. And mm. then, as he talks about, uh, gave them right back to the people, um, gave them right back to his audiences through the particular filter of, of mm-hmm. his own sensibility and intelligence. Well, I thought we could take a listen to, to some of the music that made a big impact on Woody Guthrie's development as a singer-songwriter. First, we'll hear from two groups that were key influences in the formation of Guthrie's own musical voice, the Carter family with John Hardy was a desperate little man and Smith's sacred singers with pictures from life's other side. And then we'll hear an 18th century song called Stew Ball, which also made a great impression on Guthrie. This version of the song is performed by Peter, Paul and Mary. Gallery of Peter, all the scenes that are painted from life, the scenes of my scream and of passion, the picture of love and pride, the picture of youth and of beauty, old age and a blushing young bride, all hang on the wall, but it's at its dark tuned into voice box with me chloe veltman don't forget you can access our free podcasts playlists and all kinds of other info about our series at voicebox-media.org on this evening's program we're discussing woody guthrie i'm with Peter Glazer, the creator of the stage show Woody Guthrie's American Song, which is currently in production at the Freight and Salvage Coffee House in Berkeley through July 22nd. We just heard music from two groups that were key influences in the formation of Guthrie's musical voice. The Carter family with John Hardy was a desperate little man and Smith's sacred singers with pictures from life's other side. And that was followed up by Peter, Paul and Mary's sweet rendition of an 18th century song called Stew Ball, which Guthrie reportedly loved. Peter, what was it about the Carter family and Smith's sacred singers that Guthrie responded to so strongly, do you think? Um, I think that there was something in the emotional vulnerability of that material that Mm. had a big impact on him, the sort of emotional nakedness of that material. It's very direct. Um, I think that uh, it had a simplicity to it, but also an emotional depth. Mm. And I think that's, um, you could say that a lot of Woody's material as well. 
It's interesting to think about how Guthrie often took all this pre-existing material, like an old folk song, and put his own stamp on it. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things, can we think of two or three examples of things that Guthrie did to, to take a tune that someone else had written and make it his own? A specific characteristics well, that um, come back time and time again that you've noticed? You know, he took a very famous uh, American folk song and turned it into Union Made. Um, and uh, it, it had it had been... I believe an instrumental, if certainly it, it wasn't a song about, about the union movement. Um, a lot of people criticized Woody because he uh, had never written a song for women and mm-hmm. he went ahead and, and sort of came up with Union Made, picking up on this old melody. Um, so, you know, using, using melodies that people recognized was a way into their spirits and into their souls. And Mm -hmm. it also made it possible for them to sing along. Mm -hmm. And then he would bring the the new lyric in. And that combination became a very compelling combination for people to listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, And he did that quite a lot. I mean, the melody for for This Land Is Your Land was another another traditional American song that Woody transformed into, you know, the song that... Everybody knows that Woody wrote. Right. You know, this land is your land. So um, uh, he really had a he, he really had a a really good sense of of music that would fit what he needed to do and that people would be able to sing along with. And uh, I think that was that was key. That he was he wasn't doing this arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. He wanted music that people could feel that they could add their voices to. Because mm-hmm. he didn't want he didn't want to he didn't want to sing alone, you know. Mm-hmm. He wanted people to be joining in on this music, and he wanted them to pick up his songs and sing them. Uh, that was what that that early quote was about, and uh, and he really accomplished that. You know, Pete Seeger has said that this land is your land has never been a hit. It's it's never been a single. It's never been out there, and it's known by you know so many millions of people around the world. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, it might be actually fun to hear the difference between the song that uh, Woody Guthrie based This Land Is Your Land uh, on and then hear uh, the Woody Guthrie song. So the, the song was based on, a, uh, well, at least the most famous version of it was this Carter family song, When the World's on Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's listen to that now and then we'll hear uh, Woody Guthrie with This Land Is Your Land. Loving mother, when the world's on fire, don't you want God's blood to be your pillow, I'd be over in the rocks of ages, rocks of ages will for me. I'm going to heaven when the world's on fire, and I want God's bosom to be my pillow, I'd be over in the rocks of Rocks of ages live for me. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. I went a-walking that ribbon of highway And I saw above me that endless skyway 
This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with Peter Glazer, a UC Berkeley Performance Studies professor and the creator of the musical review, Woody Guthrie's American Song. We're here celebrating Guthrie's voice. The iconic folk singer was born 100 years ago. Don't forget you can access our free podcasts, playlists and all kinds of other info about our series at voicebox-media.org. We just heard Guthrie perform his most famous song, This Land is Your Land. And before that, we heard the Carter family, a group which had a major impact on Guthrie's music with When the World's on Fire. And the two songs sound uncannily similar. I mean, one could almost say that Guthrie plagiarised the Carter family, but these issues are kind of murky at the best of times. And when we're thinking about folk music, ascribing ownership is pretty pointless, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's... Uh, uh, I think that that was what people did and and still do mm-hmm. you know those melodies um i don't even know if you could if if an author of that melody could be found i think that melody probably precedes the carter family yeah woody's mark was in the way he interpreted melodies and he certainly created some himself yeah but in the way that he found to bring an idea and a set of lyrics to a melody and then the result was were these you know incredibly powerful um, songs with with you know incredibly uh, important ideas in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sort of like to think of it in terms of Guthrie's case as being sort of like a continuous line emerging, if you will, between his sources and and then his own out and his own output. Absolutely, um, absolutely. But you know, I mean, do you think do you see anything wrong at all um, with what Guthrie was doing, adopting and adapting all the voices you heard around him from a copyright standpoint, or <laughs> not at all? I mean, have you, have you heard of anything? You know, come, it's, come a cropper in that department? Uh, not really. I mean, it, as far as Woody is concerned, mm. um, I think that uh, you know they're like four different copyrights out there for the song Worried Man. Mm-hmm. Um, my father actually has the writing credit on one of them with Dave Gard of the Kingston Trio, the version that Kingston Trio recorded. Woody has a copyright on it. You know, um, the music business is murky. Of course. <laughs> um, folk music as a as a form, I think, uh-huh. uh, is, is, that's what it is. It's mm-hmm. about, it's about sort of, pulling from different sources and drawing on different powerful tunes that 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 came out of the american uh experience and bringing those into new generations and into new times and so that's what the folk process is all about Mm -hmm. um that exchange and that sort of genealogy of melody and lyric over time Mm -hmm. um and that's what we when we hear the songs today it's that genealogy that we're becoming a part of Mm -hmm. yeah well Guthrie for his part apparently didn't give two brass guitar strings about what uh, about other people borrowing from his canon you know he openly talked about borrowing from others and others could borrow from him and in the late 1930s he wrote this to the fans of his LA radio show Woody and Lefty Lou who wanted the words to his recordings and he said to them quote this song is copyrighted in US under seal of copyright hash 154085 for a period of 28 years and anybody caught singing it without our permission will be mighty good friends of Owen because we don't give a darn. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it. That's all we wanted to do. Hmm. It's very nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's an interesting ancillary to that, which is that, that when Woody was so ill... One of the things that that the the, the fellow who managed him, uh, Harold Leventhal, who was a hugely important um, 
figure in bringing Woody Guthrie's music forward, he began to get copyrights on Woody's songs so that there could be some royalties that could help support his, that could help, uh, you know, take care of him when he was in the hospital. So it's an interesting twist that it was the copywriting of Woody's material later on mm. that allowed um, there to be some income to help him, you know, when he was so ill and to support his family when he couldn't. Hmm. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of artists who have taken Guthrie's words at face value and gone on to cover his songs over and over. Peter, why has Guthrie's voice been such an inspiration to so many singers and songwriters who followed him? If you use Dylan as an example, um, he played the guitar, he sang, and uh, you know played a lot of different material. But when he heard Woody, um, he felt like he'd found something that was doing what he wanted to do which was um, expressing ideas that felt really important and expressing them in a, in a straightforward way. Um, there's a wonderful quote uh, I saw in a, an interview with Ronnie Gilbert where she refers to a line in Pastures of Plenty uh, where Woody says, dig the beets from your ground cut the grapes from your vine to set on your table that light sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. And Ronnie said that lyric captured in two lines everything from the worker in the field to the rich fellow sitting at their table drinking that glass of wine. And Woody's ability to capture that kind of an idea in a very straightforward Mm -hmm. lyric I think was another thing that that captivated people who came in contact with his music. There's that lovely quote from John Steinbeck uh, where he calls him a little bastard because he can can capture in the space of a few verses what it takes Steinbeck, an entire novel, to produce. And, you know, Woody, uh, when he saw the movie of Grapes of Wrath, he wrote uh, The Ballad of Tom Joad, which is about... 30 verses long and basically tells the entire Grapes of Wrath in 30 <laughs> verses, approximately. Uh, so, you know, whether they whether they talk to each other or not, I don't know, but uh, um, they may have, and they certainly were trying to pick up on very similar sets of ideas. I'd like to spend the rest of the show listening to music by just a few of the artists who owe a debt to Woody Guthrie. Let's uh, start with some of the more obvious or at least well-known connections, and then eventually we'll hear some more unusual ones. Here's our first set of three tracks. Pete Seeger and Bruce Springsteen duetting at President Barack Obama's inauguration on This Land Is Your Land, and then Bob Dylan's version of Pretty Boy Floyd, and lastly but not leastly, Annie DeFranco with Do Re Mi. Sing it with us. We'll give you the words. When I was walking that ribbon of highway, as I went walking that ribbon of highway, You say that I'm an outlaw, you say that I'm a 
Christmas dinner For the family's own relief Pretty Boy Floyd uh, is a fabulous song of Woody's and um, there's a line in it uh, some will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen which Woody was using as an example of the way the banks were taking away people's homes. And that that phrase was used in uh, by a judge who uh, was pronouncing a guilty verdict in one of the early banking scandals, um, maybe 15, 15, 20 years ago. And it ended up on the front page of the New York Times. You know, I, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he said, you know, in the words of Woody Guthrie, as he spoke to the gentleman who was being accused of all of these, uh, these, uh, you know, bad behavior as far as the banks were concerned, some will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen. And uh, so Woody's, Woody's ideas linger on. Mm-hmm. And hit close to home. Yeah. They say, leaving home every day, beating the hot old dusty way out to the California line. Across the desert sands they roll, trying to get out of that old dust bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl, but this is what they find. You're listening to Voice Box with Chloe Veltman. Tonight I'm joined by Woody Guthrie expert Peter Glazer for a discussion about the vocal artistry of the American folk icon who turns 100 in 2012, Woody Guthrie. We just heard three tracks performed by artists who are well known for idolising Woody Guthrie. Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan and Annie DeFranco. And for more detailed playlists and indeed for all kinds of useful information about the Voicebox series, please visit voicebox-media.org. It was interesting what you were saying just now, Peter, as we were listening about that Annie DeFranco song, uh, how she puts it into the minor key. Yeah, I mean, Do Re Mi is a, is a fabulous song of Woody's and um, in uh, it's a major key song as written. When we do it in Woody Guthrie's American Song, it's a real bluegrass breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and Annie puts it into a minor key, which which is, it's a beautiful rendition and very, very much her style. Um, and not inconsistent with the message of the song. Right. Which is, uh, you know, California's Garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see, but believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you don't have the cash, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have the do-re-mi. So... Um, it's just interesting to hear her uh, turn it in exactly the same way that Woody would turn something a little bit in another direction and, and make it his own. So what do you think it takes to do a successful cover of a Woody Guthrie song? Wow. Um, I think it really takes uh, just a, a... 
I mean, in the best of all possible worlds, a real knowledge of what he was trying to do with his music and a real sort of instinctive response to um, to his to his uh, what motivated him and what he was trying to do with his music. Um, I mean, I've heard lots of covers and, um, you know, I think, it, you know, I grew up in the folk revival. Um, I listened to a lot of Peter, Paul and Mary and, and certainly a lot of songs were introduced to me through their singing. But when I listen to them now, it sounds very pristine. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people talk about the folk revival as sort of smoothing off the edges of a sure. lot of that material. Very and pretty. one of the things, yeah, it's real pretty and real, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I heard a version today of Woody Leadbelly and Cisco Houston doing Stewball, and mm -hmm. you could almost not recognize it when you put it up against Woody, uh, uh, Peter, Peter, Paul, and Mary's Mary. version. Uh -huh. um, but Annie DeFranco's interpretation, I think, though it may be turning the song into a minor key, is very consistent with the spirit of, of Woody and with um, the with understanding what Woody was about mm -hmm. and deciding to give the song an edge in a modern, uh, you know, as his songs evolve over time and as people do them, what they're trying to do, I think, is respond to the times they're in. And that, that arrangement of Annie's is is right on for what we're doing, what, you know, what music was floating around the world at the time that she was doing it and what she wanted to do in her own style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, when Woody Guthrie's daughter first gave Billy Bragg and Wilco the opportunity to raid her father's treasure trove of unpublished lyrics in the late 90s, two albums appeared which drew on Guthrie's unrecorded lyrics set to new music. And the public loved the result, and so more artists were invited to create music to the Guthrie lyrics, including the Klezmatics and Jonathan Brooke. And most recently, just in time for Guthrie's 100th birthday, a supergroup made up of Will Johnson from Centromatic, Jay Farah of Sun Vault and Uncle Tupelo, Yim Yames from My Morning Jacket and Anders Parker of Varnaline released The New Multitudes, a project in the vein of Wilco and Billy Bragg's Mermaid Avenue albums. Let's listen now to a track from the recently released New Multitudes album. Here's San Antone Meat House. I work in this meat house in San Antonio. You call that rising sun. It's been the graveyard for plenty of good people. And I'm just another one. And I'm just another one. A brand new take on some old Woody Guthrie lyrics. San Antone Meat House from the New Multitudes album, which was released earlier this year to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Woody Guthrie's birth. It was very interesting what you were talking about just now, Peter, about this idea of, of your show being uh, like a, a folk song in terms of how it develops and keeps developing. You mentioned that the Mermaids albums that we mm -hmm, talked about mm -hmm. a bit earlier, you have a song of theirs now in the show. Yeah, I, you know, when I created the show back in the 70s and 80s, I had access to a certain amount of material that was published and then they built the Woody Guthrie archive and I had access to more material and then when Nora uh, gave Wilco Nora's Nora Guthrie's Guthrie, daughter, right, mm -hmm. gave uh, Billy Bragg and Wilco access to his lyrics, 
um, I heard the Mermaid Avenue album, and um, one of the songs on there called Another Man Done Gone said something that I had never been able to find in Woody's own writing that really captured an, a set of ideas and a self-reflection on Woody's part that felt really key. And I gave um, Nora a call at the time and said, you know, can I, can I add that song to mm -hmm. the show? And she said, absolutely. So it's now um, the last song in the show before we get to this land. And it's done in a very contemplative way. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a pop melody, which also sort of suddenly throws the show into the present a little bit more. Um, but yeah, the show has always evolved and, and it's been a wonderful thing for me to be able to add a lyric here or um, adjust a line because of something that's going on in the country or adding Ludlow Massacre mm -hmm. um, because it, it, it for the show to sit still mm -hmm. is not it doesn't seem to be consistent with what Woody was all about. Well, no, he was a traveling man. He never right. sat still for very long, did he? And this show has traveled, you know, it's probably been in 150 theaters across the country in the last 20 years. So hmm. um, uh, it's had its journey as well. <laughs> what does all this activity, all this endless evolution, all these people performing the songs of Woody Guthrie say about the endurance of Guthrie's voice, both in the musical and perhaps the more metaphorical sense? Well, I think that he... He really tapped into, um, you know, his voice, as I, as I said earlier, I feel uh, it was a very authentic American voice. And um, his music really tapped into what I would call sort of our musical DNA in this country. And you, and you bring those melodies through his throat and his sensibility. And, um, and there there is a timelessness to his ideas. Uh, I remember when the show ran at a theater in New York and Harold Leventhal, who was Woody's manager, was still alive. He came out of the theater in tears and he said, if only we could come to a day when this material was no longer pertinent. You know, Woody was writing about things in the 30s and 40s about problems regarding immigration, about the separation between the rich and the poor, um, about politics, that about banks, about mortgages, about foreclosures, and it's all still mm -hmm. in our face. And mm -hmm. um, I'm actually doing the show uh, this fall. I'm directing the students at Berkeley in a version of the show, and it will come the weekend after Election Day. Hmm. And I'm sure that the day after Election Day, something's going to change in the show because uh, it, it it his material came out of a certain time, it resonates in a certain way, and it's sort of almost being unfaithful to Woody to think of these songs as museum pieces in a certain way, you know? Um, the new contexts of our times make the songs come alive, but also sort of require a certain attention to what's happening around us, which is what Woody was all about. Well, let's hear a couple more unusual takes on Woody Guthrie's songs now. First up, we'll hear Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings with a funkadelic version of This Land Is Your Land. And then we'll hear from the Dropkick Murphys, a hardcore Irish punk band with I'm Shipping Up to Boston. This land is your land 
You're tuned into Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. Tonight, Berkeley Performance Studies scholar Peter Glazer is with me to pay tribute to the voice of Woody Guthrie. We just heard two unusual interpretations of Guthrie music and lyrics. The first was by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and they sang This Land Is Your Land and then the Dropkick Murphys gave us I'm Shipping Up To Boston. Peter, so you told me that Nora Guthrie said something which made me gave me pause for thought. She said if Woody were alive today, he'd be doing punk. Yeah, yeah. no, she said that about 20 years ago, but um, I think that she realized that, uh, you know, her dad, had he not died as young as he did, would have um, not necessarily uh, stuck with doing old American folk music, but what probably would have, you know, been up on stage in, in black jeans doing... Uh, punk rock or at least that was Nora's sense he'd have an electric guitar that, mm-hmm. that was clear yeah <laughs> all right well we're hurtling towards the end of the show right now and we're running out of time sadly but um thank you so much Peter for coming in tonight and chatting about Woody Guthrie with us absolutely my pleasure thank you so much for tickets and information concerning Peter Glazer's stage work about Woody Guthrie, Woody Guthrie's American Song, which runs through July 22, 2012, visit thefreight.org. That's T-H-E-F-R-E-I-G-H-T dot org. That's the website of the Freight and Salvage Folk Club in Berkeley. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. We need your support. Please consider becoming part of Voicebox's inner circle of vocal music lovers by setting up an ongoing pledge for as little as $5 a month or give a one-time gift. Either way, donating to Voicebox is pretty easy and it's tax deductible. You can do this through our online PayPal link or by all means send us a check in the mail. And to find out how to do that or if you have any other ideas or comments or questions, write to us at info at voicebox-media.org. And please follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. I'll play us out with something to illustrate the sweeter side of Woody Guthrie now. Here's Riding in My Car. Have a songful week. Take me riding in the car, car, take me riding in the car, car. Take you riding in my car, car, I'll take you riding in my car. Click clank, open up a door, girls. Click clank, open up a door, boys. Front door, back door, click a dick clack. Take you riding in my car.